Father, we do praise you this morning, and as Connie prayed, we do desire that you be magnified, glorified, that we might get a small glimpse of who you are, that we might bow down before you and give you the worship and adoration that you deserve far beyond what we could even think or imagine. We do praise you. We do want to submit to you and your authority and to receive your revelation to understand how we may better glorify you and better serve you. So we commit our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me try to illustrate this morning what's going on in Romans chapter 6. We've spent some time looking at terms and concepts, because if you don't understand the language, it's hard to understand what is being communicated, and there's lots of words here that are not used in their everyday sense, if you will. The main one we just completed last couple of weeks is the concept of baptism, so we spent a week and a half on it in order to clearly understand what Paul is talking about. So let me try to illustrate that concept, and then we'll get into the passage itself. Probably only two or three verses, verse 3 through 5 this morning, try to bring it all together. Imagine Jacob, young Jacob, changing careers. He's just went through the police academy. What? Oh, I did. Yes, Imagine, imagine. Yeah, Linda's really gotten into it here. So he's gone through it. They've had all of the training, he and his fellow officers, and they've given him the certificate with the signature on it. And the moment that that signature was written out, Jacob had become, you might say, a new person, new identity. Something different is now part of his experience. Later on, they may have had a public ceremony with maybe a hundred other officers to initiate them into the service. And in that public display... They would make not only announcements and perhaps other things, but it's public so that everybody sees. But in reality, he became an officer the moment the authorizing officer signed his name. uh, And it may have even been in an office in private, and Jacob didn't even see that signing. But at that moment, he was baptized into the police force. That's like spirit baptism, unseen, private, but just as real. And then water baptism comes later in order to publicly proclaim and visibly give an example of what took place in private. So now Jacob has a totally new identity. He is now a police officer. He has a badge, he has a uniform, he has a gun. He has everything else that he needs to to function in that new capacity, that new identity. The baptism gave him all of that authority, gave him all of that equipment, that new identity. Nobody saw it, but at that moment he became a new 
new person you might see, a new new identity. So he has all of the authority that the law gives him. He has all of the power behind him, all of the force behind him that is authorized for that position. That's what's going on in Romans chapter 6. And what Paul is saying, not using that same analogy, but those that are baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into his death, and it involves all of these different aspects. Baptized into his burial, we'll see that in verse 4. That also means he's baptized into the resurrection, so he we have access to all of the power, and you might even say authority, that goes with being joined to Jesus Christ. See the analogy there? So in that, now Jacob, in his new identity, he can do certain things that he couldn't do before. And now with his new identity as well, in a lot of ways, he is a different person. He still has a civilian identity, and he may on some occasions, walk the streets without a uniform, and at night he puts on his little PJs, takes off the uniform, but uh, he still has all of the same authority. He's still That is still his identity. No matter what he wears, he still has that identity. Paul is saying that we have two capacities now. We have the capacity to live in a new way of living, but we also have the tendency to go back into a old way of life. But in reality, that old way of life has been broken by baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it happened at the moment of salvation. Make sense? No. So let's take a look at the passage. Doesn't make sense. Well, like in Acts, I know it's a change of Yeah. But the we baptism went, You were here last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's because it had to be something thing to get going. Right. But you really get the Spirit right now. Of salvation, right? Book of Acts, remember, is a historical record of a transitional period. Transition from the old economy of Old Testament, where no one was baptized into the Holy Spirit, to an era where every true believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit. In that transition, God had to make it crystal clear particularly to the apostles. Otherwise, you'd have two churches. You'd have a Gentile and a Jewish church. And they'd be in the same antagonistic situation as they were before. You'd have a split at the very beginning. So what God did to initiate, we went through this last week, so it's good to review it. In Acts chapter 2, God is demonstrating to all Jewish believers, disciples that had trusted in Jesus Christ, And because they had already believed in Christ, they had not received what was promised. Jesus promised to wait until the Spirit came upon them. He does this in the upper room and elsewhere. John the Baptist even kind of pronounces it in that Jesus is going to baptize with Spirit and fire. So on the day of Pentecost, in order to give visible testimony of something that is invisible... God gave this, what we might say is a second blessing, but only to that first century people. So, so they believed. That's what I'm saying. God may do, he can do whatever he wants to, but that's not the pattern. That's not the, that's not the normative 
way that God is operating, okay? And in order that the Jewish believers realize that those despised Samaritans are going to receive the same thing, he in fact gives them, you might even say, a second Pentecost, a Samaritan Pentecost in Acts chapter 8. In order that Peter see, oh, okay, God is doing something different now, and it includes even Samaritans, even them. And even beyond the Samaritans, we have a third Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. The despised Gentiles now, they receive this same baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's visible so that the disciples can see it. Peter needed uh, several experiences in Acts chapter 10, even before the incident, the Cornelius incident. God gives Peter three visions. Remember the sheep coming down and it's got all these unclean animals and God says, eat. What? Those are prohibited in Leviticus 11. I can't eat those. I mean, those are unclean. I can't eat them. God says, what I've declared clean is now clean. And he sees it, what, three times. He He sees the vision. God is introducing a new era. And then later on, the unclean Gentiles now have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have something similar in Acts chapter 19. David? How do you rectify what you just said with the, with the story of Philip and the, and the eunuch then who said, here's water, what's preventing me from being baptized? He had no idea about yeah. baptism. So how does that correlate to what we're talking about? Well, when we first talked about baptism, this idea of ritual water cleansing was very common. Right, right, I agree. Not only amongst so the Jewish known, people, not, known that from his own. yeah, not on, not only amongst the Jewish people, sure. but everyone around. They could see these pools. They so could see these mikvahs. Baptism, yeah, and said, "Hey, let's do that." As a, I mean, he may not. He may it's not, not a public. It's not a public display. It's a private thing. What's it's that? Just him and Philip. Well, right. There's two people. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's well, two two people. Yeah, that's public right. enough. Entourage, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, right. just showing all of the people that he's with. Right. Yeah. Not intentionally. Yeah, and the water baptism. No, no, not him. That's why I'm just saying that's kind of it's yeah. isolated from everything else, but it's not right. So what Romans six, First Corinthians twelve, other passages that speak of baptism. This is the normative now. Paul in Romans six is talking to believers in Rome. And he doesn't divide them up and say, okay, those of you that have not had this second blessing, this is, now you have to receive it. He speaks to all of the Romans, and by inspiration, he speaks to all believers throughout, that if you have been baptized, eras tense, the assumption, and more than the assumption, at the moment of salvation. And it's in the passive. Remember, that's why I made the big point. It's in the passive. It's something we don't participate in. It's something that is done to us so that we receive something. We don't seek it. We don't pursue it. We don't pray for it. We don't yield to it. Okay, I didn't mean to go over the whole thing last week. But anyway, so we're talking about the Christians at Rome and in a broad way, it applies to every believer, what he's talking about in all of the book of Romans. So we're talking about sanctification, chapter 6 through 8. 
And this is the beginning of chapter 6. We talked about three parts. Just a quick review here. Chapter 6, primarily the principles. Now, there's going to be other principles he develops, but this is the main emphasis of chapter 6. And chapter 7 deals primarily with our tendency to try to do certain things to sanctify ourselves. Those don't work. So we have, I title it, the problems in sanctification. And he's going to go back to chapter 6. In fact, back to the passage we're looking at today. And in chapter 8, he's saying, no, there's power available. And we're going to touch on it today because this is where Paul introduces it. And then most of chapter 8 is going to expand upon that power that's available for sanctification. So that's a quick overview of the three chapters. We've seen verses 1 and 2 where Paul raises the issue. And remember, even starting in chapter 5, chapter 5 is transitional. He starts even verse 1, having been justified. Romans 5.1. In other words, now that I've explained justification, and now, assuming we're talking about those who have been justified, now he lays out some of the ramifications and effects of that, or the product of that. And now, very clearly in chapter 6, he's following that train of thought. Shall we continue in the old way of life? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Are you crazy? My paraphrase. Uh, Are you out of your mind? And then he gives the answer to it. In fact, I've got it on a slide here. He gives the answer, no, because we have died to sin. We've died to sin. We have a badge now. The badge doesn't say City of Albuquerque. It says Jesus Christ on it. Okay, we are in a new environment now. That old environment, basically, we've died to it, and the principle that he develops, we've looked at this, I'll review it a little bit. The principle is this uniting to Christ in verse 3. Got it? And then we'll move on to verse 4, but let's review again. Verse 3, or do you not know? This is something that uh, was taught and particularly in the book of Acts, and people began to sort it out. Oh, okay, Gentiles, Samaritans, anyone that trusts in Jesus Christ. We have the history of what happened during the book of Acts. They have this baptism of the Holy Spirit. You do not know all of us, all of us, not just those of you with the second blessing. Okay, that's transitional. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized, aorist tense, past, passive. Somebody did it to us. And we know Jesus Christ is the baptizer through the Holy Spirit. We are passive. We we receive it. And he says it twice. Having been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized, have been baptized into his death. And we had to go into the long explanation, because when you see the word baptism, the first thing that you think of is somebody being dumped in a tank. That's not what we have here. We're talking about something that is invisible, that is spiritual, but it's real. Dwayne? Look at the great omission. The language of that makes it sound like when he gives the command to go. Yep. No problem. 
Go make disciples of Actually, the command is not to go. The command is to baptize. Okay, go ahead. But I'm, I'm following you. That, that's my point. Mm-hmm. disciple to go baptize. Right. I think in uh, the Great Commission, it's the package. It's the package. It includes water baptism, I, for sure. But it, it presupposes the invisible, private, spiritual baptism. Okay. So having been baptized into his death, and I tried to illustrate it with a young boy that trusted in Jesus Christ, he was baptized, and the meaning of the word, in fact, it's explained in verse 4, we'll get there in a moment, is that spirit baptism means that we are united with Christ. That's the idea behind this concept. Just as Jacob, now that he's a police officer, he's united with other police officers with a with a single purpose of protecting the public. They are united together. They work together. They have a similar vision, a similar uniform, a similar purpose. We are identified with Christ. Is that the same thing as being in Christ? Yes. In fact, this is the foundation for all of those passages. There's over 200 passages that speak of us being in Christ. And if we get that far, I'm going to illustrate some of them. Okay, United with Christ. Or you might say identified with Christ. You see the badge, you see the uniform, you see Jacob is identified with this force. He's identified with them, and you see something of an external display of it. You might even say, because this is the essence of the word, immersed in something. Remember in the everyday sense, I used the illustration of immersing a garment in a dye, such that that dye in some way changes at least the identity of that garment. It was white before, and now you put it in a red dye. You look at it, and somebody sees you wearing it. They say, oh, did you get a new shirt? No, but it is changed. It has a new identity. It has a new color. That's the idea. But it's immersed in the dye. So we're immersed in Christ. We're purified. It also, in fact, this comes from the Jewish washings. It has a purifying aspect to it as well. So we're purified in Christ as well. And that purification, that immersion, that identification, that uniting with Christ gives us a new identity such that now we have spiritual power available to us no matter how old you are physically. And that's just bam. Bam. The moment of justification, bam. Yep, exactly. Good way of putting it. All right? So, we've spent a lot of time looking at key terms because they're important here. And if you don't get the terms right, then you're going to miss what Paul is trying to communicate. We've talked about sanctification. What is that all about? Spent a whole week on that. Or what? Three weeks, maybe. Sanctification is, the essence of it, is to be set apart for a particular purpose. It was used in an every way sense of setting anything apart. I used kind of things that you women do. You have dishes that you only use during Thanksgiving, Christmas, special occasions. China. You keep them in a cabinet. You keep them set apart for a particular occasion. And I gave you other illustrations as well. That's how the word was commonly used. 
God is attaching theological significance to that word. And remember, there's a whole word group. Holy, holiness, sanctification, consecration. These are translations. But it's the same Greek root, if you will. Same Greek word group. So the idea of holy... God is ultimately and utterly holy in that he is totally separate. In fact, he's transcendent. He's apart from the creation. So he is ultimately holy. And in the Old Testament, certain things related to the temple or the tabernacle were holy. They didn't have magical characteristics to them. They were common bread, common candelabra common utensils that were now set apart and now they're sanctified. Without any magical, mystical ideas here, they were set aside for special use. The word saint is part of that word group. Believers are called saints because we are set apart. So we spent a lot of time looking at the word group. We looked at death, very, very important. When the Bible speaks of death, particularly in passages like Romans 6, he's not talking about ceasing to breathe. So we went into Genesis 3 to try to define and look at this concept of death. What is death all about? Death involves the intellect. Adam and Eve died intellectually. Paul says their minds were darkened, or all unbelieving minds are darkened. That's a death. It's a separation from wholeness, separation from the way God created mankind. It affects our emotions. It affects our will. It affects every aspect. So there's a comprehensive sense, and that's what I tried to convey there, this comprehensive separation, this comprehensive sense of death. That's how it's used in Romans. In fact, even grammatically, In beginning in chapter 5 through about the middle or somewhere in chapter 8, he uses the article. He's referring to the death. The death. What he's talking about from chapter 5, he begins to talk about the death of Adam that we experience. And that death of Adam that it had an impact on his intellect, on his emotions, on his will, on his relationships, and certainly in his relationship to God. It's a spiritual death. It's an intellectual death. It's an emotional death. It's a relational death. Every aspect of who we are, that's the death. That's the death that we have here. Make sense? The death. Everywhere you see death here, almost, I think every, almost nearly every, every usage of it, in 6, 7, and 8, is the death. Just like it also refers to the sin. Sin has the article as well. And it's the sin of Adam that is imputed to us from chapter 5. Got it? So we have to keep that in mind. Today we're going to look at another concept. The alternative is what? Life. And we view it in the same comprehensive sense. And by the way, when it says death... Did Adam die the moment he sinned, Adam and Eve? Yes. Yes? No. No. <laughs> in this case, both of you are right. Because that's a different way. It's not at the same time and same. Yeah, exactly. He, he did not cease breathing. So in the sense of ceasing breathing and his heart stopping, no. 
But in the sense that he died physically, in some aspect, yes, his cells began to deteriorate and die, and his body began to replenish. But he was experiencing physical death. His gray hair started to grow out. His wrinkles started to appear. His arteries started to clog. Okay, he was in the process, and 930 years later, he stopped breathing. But in the day that he ate, in fact, in the nanosecond that he ate, he died physically as well. Natty. Well, I was just thinking about the Hebrew construction for that, which is translated in English, you will surely die. Yep. Or some translations say, in dying, you shall die. Right. Infinitive absolute. Right. Explain the meaning of this infinitive absolute. I'm sorry. I'm a little rusty. You don't have to do it. But I'm just wondering if that is what helps give us a hint that it's more than yeah. just physical death. Yeah. It's comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you could literally translate it, uh, where's, uh, who's the one that likes to say it? It's not here today. Jeremy. You shall die dead, is the literal meaning there. In other words, not only certainty, but comprehensively as well. Okay. Spirit baptism. This is what we looked at the last couple of weeks, and I just introduced it. It's a uniting to Christ in all aspects. And again, as I answered Terry's question, it includes all of those passages that speak of us being in Christ. One passage, Ephesians 1, 3, we have been blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And what is added to that? In Christ Jesus. This is where it begins. Baptism. Uniting with him, immersed in him, identified with him. And you can include purified. So now that we understand these, now we can move on. So the principle three Now, beginning in verse 4, therefore, what are the implications or what are the, what is the significance of this joining, uniting, all of that? We are united to his resurrection. And that's all of chapter 8. He's going to expand upon that. So let's take a look at it. Verse 4. Therefore. See the therefore there? The therefore is therefore what? Because it's referring to what he said in verse 3. It refers to this being baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him at the instant that we received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. At the nanosecond that that occurred, we were buried with him. In other words, from God's perspective, it was as if, and in reality, we were crucified on the cross, taken down from the cross, Put in the grave. It's as if we had the same experience. That's imputation. Remember we made a big deal and it almost seemed unfair. Well, why is Adam's sin imputed to us? Well, because we're related to him. In fact, you could say we're united with Adam in sin because we descend from him. And his sin, Romans 5 speaks of it being imputed to us. Well, the same concept. Everything Christ did is now imputed to us. David? Um, the, the, the moment of Christ's death, the veil is torn from top to bottom. That's a great picture of our new access, of direct access now. Yes, direct access. That, yeah. That's part of that. Yeah. 
yeah. the whole future of us right. having direct access to them. That's part of this transition from an Old Testament way of approaching God, where there were barriers, to now something miraculous and definite happens such that there's free access. Yes, Bill. I was just thinking about that, that. There is that free access, yet it is still clearly on God's terms and His way, still recognizing Him as holy, yes. and mm-hmm. yet there is that closer direct access. Yes. Yes. Still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Therefore we have been buried with Him, and notice it's through baptism. Not water. Stay dry in Romans 6. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have been buried with him through baptism into death and burial, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. And notice, might walk anticipates something future. Might walk in newness of life. We're going to develop that. So what does it mean to be united to Christ? We're united in his death in that a definite break has been made. A break from bondage to sin. Something real has happened to us the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ. The old way of life. He's going to expand this in the following verses and give some other aspects of it. This break from the old way of life that we could not break. There was nothing we could do. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We could not remove them. We could not cleanse them. We were we stood condemned, and we were also in a lifestyle that reflected that condition of deadness. We couldn't give ourselves life. So baptism into his death breaks us from that bondage to sin that he's been emphasizing all the way into chapter 5. It also speaks here in verse 4 of being buried with him. This is certainty of the break. When Christ is in the grave, it was certain that he was dead. (coughs) Certainty of death. And now what we're going to look at in this passage is so that as Christ was raised from the dead, resurrection, we have the historical record at the end of the Gospels, And we see God acting, or Jesus acting, in the book of Acts through disciples. He's alive. What's the guy's name? Put his hands in the... Thomas put his hands in the nail prints after resurrection so that he would believe. And Jesus said, blessed are those that don't see my hands, but believe in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the resurrection of Christ so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, in other words, God's working, God's work, God's power displayed, giving life to deadness, raising Christ from the dead. And by the way, the glory of God, when you see that little phrase, we've seen it often, it kind of looks at God in his total character, including, in this case, omnipotence, omnipotent power. And the key here, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we are identified with Christ's resurrection, and that means we have access. It's not automatic. We have access, however. We have access to the same 
glory, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Bill? Does that perhaps point to what we talked about a little bit in verses 12 through 14? Yes. There is the possibility of walking in that newness of life. Right. We still need to not let sin reign. Yes. Yeah. There's a tension there that we'll, we'll address. You're talking about 14 to 15, maybe this summer sometime. <laughs> no, just kidding. After, after today, we'll probably go through verses 5 through 10. I, I don't know if I can get through them next week, but we'll move a little bit more rapidly. I had to kind of lay these concepts out in order for us to understand what he's talking about. Once we understand them, then the other verses just kind of fall into place. Connie. Um, earlier when we were talking about, and I'm here last week when you mentioned the idea of, uh, and you had said God was doing this new thing with baptism by fire, um, back then we could transitional. And period. speaking in tongues, we dealt with all that last week as well. Yeah. But, um, couldn't that also, the verse that came to my mind and these blessed are not seen and yet that would be all of us who may not, who do not see that tongue of fire on someone mm-hmm. and yet we believe mm-hmm. that we have been seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when Jesus spoke those, I think he was primarily referring to resurrection, however. But it would include the other things that you're talking about as well. Okay. So, my walk in newness of life. So, let's take, I won't spend as much time on this, because we can just think of the alternative of death. But think of life, and I'm just going to go through this somewhat quickly. The terms for life, and it occurs several Several times, the noun and the verb. Just remember, we went through the same thing with death. There's a noun usage and there's a verb usage. The idea is the same. It's just whether it's in the verbal idea, in other words, it's an action, or whether it's a an objective idea or an object, it's a noun. So also we have two words, zao, to live, or to have life. That's the verbal form, to live life. And just like any theological term, I've stressed this over and over, every theological term in the Bible has what kind of a usage or what kind of a meaning, common everyday sense, and there are lots of examples where it speaks of just living life out. In fact, we'll go over some of those. There's also a noun. In fact, uh, a beautiful name is Zoe or Zoe. It means life. So we kind of take that from the Greek word for life. This is physical or spiritual life. It can be used in either way, depending on the context. So very commonly, every day, it just speaks of life that I have. It's something that is built into us from God's creation. So those are the words that we use there. It's used in this physical sense. And since we're in Romans... In Romans 7, 1 through 3, notice what it says there. Or do you not know? Interesting again. See, he repeats that little phrase there. He's going to give us an illustration. He's given us an illustration in 7, 1 through 3. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. And notice law is not capitalized here. That's another key term we've looked at. He's talking about Roman law here. You know the Roman law. Dealing with marriage. Here's the Roman law dealing with marriage. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he, what? Lives. Just physical life. Just everyday living. Just existence. The law 
has jurisdiction as long as he lives. And if you want to read the rest, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. There it is again. While he's living. In other words, physical life. He's breathing. His heart is pumping. But if... That's all? Hmm? That's all. I think so. Yeah. That's why I'm using it. But if her husband dies, and by the way, same word that we've been looking at before, she is released from the law concerning her husband. The Roman law says when her husband dies, she's no longer married. So then, if while her husband is living, it's referring to just everyday life, common example, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. She's free to remarry now. She's no longer married to the first husband. Just an example. Now, he's using it in the context of sanctification. We'll get to that eventually, maybe this time next year. Who knows? But the point I'm making, there's an example of the words that we're talking about used in this everyday just living life, just physical living life. 1 Corinthians 1.8 is another one similar to that. Um, somebody look that one up. And somebody look up Matthew 16... 16, 16, 16. Lots of passages referring to God's life. Lots of passages referring to eternal life. Who wants to do 1 Corinthians 1 8? Um, you don't know if that's the right one? Well, this is what it says. You've got it then? also confirm you to the end. That's what Corinthians 1 8. 1 8. Yes. It could be Second Corinthians sometimes I make that mistake. What do you got, Jacob? Corinthians one eight says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came upon us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired. Okay. We despaired even of our physical life. We're afraid that we were going to die, basically. Stop breathing and die. See, Jacob's been here before, and he knows the mistakes I made, so he's... He knows how to correct them. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Not only is he now a duly, what do you call it? <laughs> duly appointed. Duly appointed cop, but, <laughs> but he's displaying also his theological acumen as well. Okay. I'll read uh, Romans 9.16. Who's got Matthew 16.16? 16? Connie? Dave, why don't you look up John 3? In fact, you've got that one memorized, so you don't need to look it up. Yeah, okay. So 9.26 in the book of Romans, and I'm just picking these because they're in the book of Romans. It shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of what? The living God. And when we speak of God and God living, he has inherent life, or he has, what's the other word theologically? Self-existent life, which is different from life that he's granted to us. All life comes from him, but here's just one passage in Romans that speaks of the living God that has self-existent life. And who's got Matthew 16, 16, Connie? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. All life ultimately stems from the living God. And eternal life, the Romans 2-7 passage, 
to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. In fact, the word eternity or the idea of eternal, there's several passages that speak of eternal life, the two together. And here's just one of them and one of them in Romans. And a very common one, John 3, 15 and 16. I'll start with 14. All right. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him But have everlasting or eternal life. Very, very common. So that's spiritual. In fact, that is ultimate life in all of its aspects that we are given the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. There's a fourth sense that is very similar to what I tried to develop with the idea of death. When we spoke of death, it's used in Romans 6 in this broader, comprehensive sense that involves our intellect, our will, our emotions, our relationships, our morality, all aspects of death. So also the counterpart in these same passages refers not so much immediately, but I'm going to try and show this later on when we talk about responding and it speaks of life. I think it's speaking in this more comprehensive, broader sense. Comprehensive spiritual life. I'm kind of using that description to kind of capture this broader idea of life. 6.4, that's the passage we're looking at, but you can see it also in 6.10 and 11. For the death, that's that comprehensive death, for the death that he died, this is Christ, he died, and, and again, that's that comprehensive death, to sin once for all, but the life that he, Christ, lives, he lives to God. He lives it in its fullest sense, even greater sense than what we live. And then verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And when he's speaking alive, now we can renew our thinking and think new thoughts, living thoughts. We can think his word and incorporate that. We can deal with a proper way of responding to emotions because we have this new life, this new power to deal with emotions. We can renew relationships or maintain relationships with other believers that have this same life. In fact, relationships that Jesus says are closer than blood relatives. That's life in this comprehensive sense. 8.6 is another one, and this is what Jesus is speaking of in John 10.10. I came that you may have life, right? And life what? More abundantly. In other words, abundant in that it is this comprehensive life that affects everything else. Somebody want to do 2 Corinthians 2.16. And by the way, there are several passages as well. I could give you a whole list of them. And you've got it, Connie? To the one, the aroma of death to death. To the other, the aroma of life to life. Life to life. In other words, it kind of expands and grows and magnifies. Life to life. Keep on. And who is sufficient for these things? Okay, none of us are sufficient for such things, but God has granted them to us by his grace. 
That, I think, is how the word is used. So we can be renewed in our thinking. We can be given new power to be able to do God's will, new enablement. Our emotions are affected. Our relationships are affected. And the things that we do now are going to have eternal effects. That's life. That's the life he's talking about here in Romans chapter 6. So now we can add to our key terms here. In Romans 6, when when you see life here in this context, probably more often than not, it has this present, comprehensive, spiritual sense. I'm using a lot of phrases here to kind of describe it. Well, in Romans 1, 16, it says, Live from life to faith. Faith to faith. That's faith. You live. The righteous shall live. Yeah. Yep. He's talking about it. Yeah. Remember, that captures the essence of all of the book of Romans. 1, 16 and 17. So what does it mean to be united to Christ? We're united in his death. We have a break from death. A break from sin. Death and bondage to sin. We have the certainty of this break in burial. We're identified with Christ's burial. And we're identified with his resurrection. That means we have access to this comprehensive resurrection life. You have comprehensive to it as well. And it's supernatural. It's invisible. And it comes with power. That's the heart of Romans 8. And the key to the Christian walk is living in that power, living supernaturally, living in resurrection power. Everything that Paul is developing here is leading us to that in chapter 8. David? I was saying uh, living the Christian life, also remembering that we're not free from death until we receive immortality. Right, and we're going to get in verse 6, so you got to come back, this is a preview. <laughs> In, ver- in verse 6, we're going to talk about, he's going to introduce this concept that you're talking about there, and he's going to talk about we have been, or our life has been broken from our old way of life, our old condition in Adam, but the sin nature, he's going to make a distinction there. The sin nature, in other words, the capacity to live in old life is still there. Jacob can still live as a criminal if he wants to. He makes that choice. Even though he's identified in a whole different realm. But he can go back to his criminal lifestyle if he wants to. Okay, he has that capacity. Something you said earlier, too, about the new policeman who's putting on his uniform. He's putting it on his uniform every day. Mm -hmm. And that's part of our Christian life. Yeah. And by the way, Linda, he's not really a criminal. No, using it as <laughs> Okay. Now next week I want to touch on this, so let's kind of leave this for next week. But you might even study Ephesians 1 because he uses this phrase over and over and over in Christ and it expands the, not all of them, but many broad areas in which we are in Christ. But since our time is done, why don't we close there, and we'll pick up with that next week. A closing thought here. Union with Christ gives us access to resurrection power. That's the key to the Christian walk. Who wants to close for us? Anyone?
There he is. Thank you, Lord, for this scripture and for the hope that you do give us, Lord, and how we are in you and that you give us the power and help us, Lord, to just uh, live our lives with that in mind. Help us to draw upon you, Lord, and not draw upon our flesh and nature, but draw upon you and what you've done for Jesus' name. Amen.